I was thinking about some of the words of the song this morning, the second one, where he talks about a painted canvas. And I've been thinking about that because I posted this week a picture that my, uh, that, uh, of, the, uh, of a sunrise that I saw this, this week. And some of you have seen my Facebook post or uh, Instagram post or Twitter uh, account. You've seen that post of that picture. And in, in the Facebook account, I said, my mom would have loved this picture because it had so much pink in it. And that was her favorite color. She loved the color pink. And, and that phrase that we, we sang in that second song is uh, that painting of the sky every day is a picture of your grace. And I was thinking about how God could have made just a normal sky every single day. He could have made a gray sky and that's it. That's all you get. Think, why, did, why, did, why does he make a different picture every day? Why is the sky so different? And some, we go, wow, this is incredible. And then we see those gray skies and it makes us really appreciate the, the more beautiful ones that we think are beautiful. And, and you look at that and go, wow. A gray sky is beautiful to a farmer who needs rain. And yet I love these, these beautiful portraits that God does simply for our pleasure. Because we're the ones seeing it. He does it for us and it's a picture of his grace. I think, wow. The book of Galatians, as we've been studying it together, is a picture of God's grace. It's like that beautiful picture, painting of the sky that God does every day. The book of Galatians is a beautiful painting of his grace, and he compares it to law. And he's saying, we don't want to be living by the law. We want to be living by grace. And in fact, he's, he's stunned at the Galatians and in his first statement, and we're going to be looking at a rather long section this, this morning, so we won't be able to look at every detail, but I want to hit some highlights because I think this really pictures this section about God's grace, but how easy it is to fall back into law. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21 starts our passage, and we're going to go about halfway into chapter 5 as well. It says, tell me you who want to be under law. Well, if you didn't pick it up earlier in the book, he hits it here. You're wanting to be under law. Why would somebody want to go back under law? We, t- we talked about that last time. Because it's achievement oriented. It's success oriented. If I achieve, then I, then I get rewarded by God, right? We like that. And we don't like grace so much because that means I have to focus on my failure. And I have focus that I can't keep the law and that I need his grace and we don't like to admit that and so we like the idea of grace better. I was thinking about this week how we, we like law because it's the recipe. It tells us exactly what to do next, right? I'm married to someone who likes the recipe. She's married to someone who likes to just kind of, you know, go with the flow, Right? And so pray for her. <laughs> and not that she would change, but that she would, you know, because uh, uh, she's got to deal with me. And I, I'm one of these guys that I, I like kind of the, uh, you know, uh, clowning around. In fact, this morning I realized, uh-oh, I'm in one of those moods. I, t- I warn my staff sometimes, okay, I'm in goof mode, so just know that that's where I'm at today. And, uh, and I can derail a meeting like that. And, uh, and th- this morning, uh, as we were doing the sound check, and you know, we do that every Sunday morning, make sure the volumes are right and everything. And so he's getting ready and he's looking down and he's, and he looks up and he sees my mouth moving. 
And I know he's, I could see him cranking it up. He's going, what? And then I go, hi. And he goes, boom, you know. <laughs> and I go, sorry, I'm in one of those, you know. And it's a dangerous thing when it's a Sunday morning and I'm in, in the mood, right? I'm in that zone. I'm in goof mode. And it's like, uh-oh, here it comes. And, and that's me. I love living life. You know, it's one of the reasons I was able to start a church because I could just kind of go with the flow. And, oh, this isn't working. Well, let's try this. And this, this, this isn't. And, and my wife, she, she likes, you know, she'll follow the recipe. And I'll be, hey, why don't we throw this in there? And she's like slapping my hand. You know, get out of there. I'm the one who, you know, looks at the, at the uh, uh, remodel of our house. We did a remodel upstairs. And I'm the one that looks at the remodel and goes, oh, yeah, we got this. And she's going, but what's it going to look like? I need to see a picture of what it's going to look like and what are the steps and how, you know. And I'm like, oh, we got this, right? Well, with law, we, we, we want the recipe. And so it's attractive because it lays it out. And so I would imagine that probably about half of you in here at least are more like my wife and then uh, maybe not half or, or uh, otherwise we'd have a real chaotic world. Uh, maybe we do anyway. <laughs> But about half of us like to kind of go with the flow. And you're probably married to one of those. You're one of those and you're married to another one. And, or you've got kids that are some of those. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in one of those two areas. But we like to go back to law. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were going back to law. It feels comfortable. If I go with grace, that means I've got to change. It means I've got to transform, and we're scared of that. We're afraid of that. Anytime that in life that we've got to step into something we've never done before. You ever had those things? Things you've never done before. When you got married, that was one of those times. When you had kids, that was one of those times. I remember my older brother and his wife said that when they had their firstborn and they got home from the hospital and it's in the bassinet and they set them up on the, on the cabinet, and we're on the table, and, and they're standing there looking at each other and go, what do we do now? <laughs> we got this far, what's next? You know, and it's like, wow, that's life. We, we struggle with that. And so we like law. And, and these guys, they were going back to law, and, and Paul's saying, don't do it. They're incompatible. And in fact, I was, you know, with my PhD studies, I've had to read very broadly and all sorts of, and, I'm, I'm, and my major area is systematic theology, and, and I tell people that's my, my area of study, and they all kind of look at me and go, huh, what's that? And I realize people don't know what systematic theology is. It's the study of God is theology, right? Systematic theology means it's systematic. You do it in a systematic way, and, and so you lay out these systems, and you read these different systems, and you have Lutheran systems, and Methodist systems, and Baptist systems, and liberal systems, and conservative systems, and charismatic systems, and so they have all these different systems, right? And you've got to command all of Scripture in systematic theology, but also all knowledge. It's a pretty big discipline. Because you've got to understand philosophy and psychology and, and you've got to understand the sciences and all of those come into play when you're putting your system together. If you're talking about evolution creation, you need to know science pretty well. And if you're talking about uh, marriage, you need to know those uh, practical verses as well. And so all the, they all come to bear. And so there's nobody that can truly say, I have, I'm completely perfect systematic theologian. You, you know parts. Well, I was reading one Lutheran theologian this last week, a guy named John Mueller. And here's what he said. He says, obedience to the gospel and obedience to the law are opposites. And then he made this statement that I thought was very helpful. He says, for the first, 
which is uh, the gospel, excludes the works of men. And then he quotes Galatians 2.16. And so I looked up Galatians 2.16. I thought, well, we're studying Galatians. This is really good. 2.16 says, um, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. They're opposites. In fact, I realized in that moment and in some of the other things I read is faith is not part of the law system. You don't need faith. You just need, here's the law and here's the consequences of that. There's no, there's no faith involved. There's no heart involved in the law. It's very cold and calculated. You do this and you receive this. You mess up, you receive this. There's no heart in the law. There's no mercy in the law. Mercy comes outside of the law. And so he said... They're opposites. The first excludes the works of men, Galatians 2. The second demands them, Galatians 3.12. And so I looked up at Galatians 3.12, and it says, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. And so you realize, in order to keep the law, I have to keep it perfectly, which means in order to keep the law, I have to say, I am perfect. And I can't say that. In order to keep the law, you would have to say, you are perfect. In order to not need the grace of God, you would have to say, I am perfect in all that I do. And if you think that, uh, I've got some psychologist friends that could talk to you. <laughs> I can ask your family and I can, I can get the real story, right? You can ask my family and get the real story, unless I paid them off. And so the reality is, Grace excludes work. Law demands work. They're opposites. They don't work together. It's not one system. You've got one system or the other system, which you're going to live by. You've got to choose which one you live by. And so that's why Paul is going after these Galatians. And he says, you know, there's some pretty famous people that have struggled with this. He talked about it in chapter 2. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I posed him to his face because he was, he was wrong. He'd gone back to law. Barnabas with him. Some pretty notable folks that fell back into law. It's comfortable. He says, don't do it. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to chapter 5, verse 1. I want you to get this picture. Because in chapter 5, verse 1, he gives the key verse of the whole book. Highlight it, star it, uh, highlight it on your electronic device, underline it. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let that soak in a minute. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the law doesn't give us freedom. Grace gives us freedom, and he's going to talk about that in a minute. That's why he goes on and says in that same verse, do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. It's slavery to be bound to the law. And then he, we go back and we see why is he saying this? And he gives us an illustration. This is the illustration uh, uh, that's powerful in the book. He says, tell me you who want, or want to be under law, verse 21, and you're not aware of what the law says. Are you not aware of what the law itself says? The law is what he's getting ready to say, highlights grace. The law honors grace, celebrates grace, and not law, not itself. 
And here's how he, here's his illustration. He says, for it is written, in fact, you'll end this illustration from here to the end of the chapter, verses 21 through 23, he gives the history of these two sons that are born. We'll talk about that. Then he gives an allegory of them. And we'll talk about that here on verse 24. And then he gives an application in verses 28 and following. So that kind of gives you where, you're, where we're going with this, where Paul is going with this. So here's what he says. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, I sang a little song when I was teaching uh, kids years ago, and it was not two, it was seven, right? Remember the song? Seven sons, his father Abraham, father Abraham, da, 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 da. You know that song? Maybe you don't. Maybe I'm the only one that remembers that song. He had five more sons by Keturah, but when, what Paul is referring to is these two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. He says, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. Why did that happen? Because Abraham had been given a promise. In that promise, he was promised to have a son, Isaac. Now, you have to understand when he got the promise uh, and, and when it was fulfilled, it was fulfilled when his wife, Sarah, was 90 years old. Imagine having a child at 90. Yeah. I mean, going to their soccer games, <laughs> kind of be rough, right? And he was 100 and they were waiting. The Lord had given the promise they were waiting, and they got tired of waiting. And so because they got tired of waiting, Sarah uh, uh, ill-advisedly gave uh, her um, handmaid, her servant, Hagar, to Abraham and gave birth to Ishmael. Ishmael, who became the father of a lot of the Middle Eastern countries. And then you have... Isaac, who was born. Laughter is what his name means. Joy. And so Isaac was born. And so when Ishmael is born, she was a slave. And so he would have been born a slave. When Isaac was born, he was free because his mother was free. And so he starts this imagery of slavery and freedom, and now he ties it into the law. And here's how he does it. It's kind of a subtle thing that he does. He says, one by the slave, one by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. What was the ordinary way? Abraham's merit. Abraham did it on his own. It wasn't part of the promise of God. He just took the initiative. He thought it was a good idea. He decided that he would follow his way, not God's way. And, and it all became about him. And, 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 and there was no power in that. It was all just human. He says, but, by the, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. Miraculous. She was beyond childbearing years. And God had given a promise. And that promise is that they would have a son. And that son was Isaac. And he goes on. At the, uh, in verse 29, if we jump ahead, he talks about the son in the ordinary way, persecuted the son, born by the power of the spirit. If you missed it, don't miss it then. He's talking miraculous. He's talking not only promise, but miracle. The spirit of God getting involved. 
And so what he's saying is, he says, you want to be under the law? And yet here's what the law honors. Here's what the law lifts up. It doesn't lift up. The law, the, uh, the law doesn't lift up itself. It lifts up grace. It honors Isaac. And he, and he put them in a, in a difficult position because now all of a sudden they've either got to choose Isaac, who was the promised seed through which uh, uh, God had promised for them and for the nation of Israel, or they had to pick Ishmael, which represented the law. And here they are wanting to hang on to law, and they're wanting to hang on to Isaac and not Ishmael. And so he put them in a very difficult position that they had to make a decision as they're listening to him. And so then he goes on and says in verse 24, these things may be taken figuratively. The word that's translated figuratively in the NIV, I don't know what your version uses, in the Greek is a word allegoreo. You hear the word allegory in that word? It's allegory is how this should be translated. These things may be taken as an allegory. An allegory where you're looking for a hidden meaning. An allegory where you're saying this means this. There are, you, you, can, you can completely destroy scriptural interpretation by making everything an allegory. I've read different authors through my studies. I read Gregory the Great. And, and he, he did allegory uh, just on, on almost every passage. He says, well, this means this, and this person means this, and these two people, and you're, you're going, this is craziness. And so there's, there's many Bible students who look at this section and go, Paul, you've really lost your way here. Why did you go to allegory? And in fact, what I would tell you is I, I never use allegory unless Scripture uses allegory. I never look for types in Scripture unless Scripture says this is a type. Adam's a type of Christ. Okay, then that's a type. But I, otherwise, I don't go there unless Scripture goes there. It's just a good rule of thumb. He says, these things may be taken figuratively or allegorically, for the women represent two covenants. And here he explains how that is. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia. And you, you stop there and you think, okay, why does he pick her to be Mount Sinai? Because, and this is the thing that, uh, is the thing that we already talked about is, Born in the ordinary way, born of merit, born of works, born of human effort. That's the reason that he picks her as Mount Sinai. Says she's born of human effort and she leads to slavery. And then we become enslaved to the law that we cannot keep, which means we become enslaved to the whole idea of, of, of sin leading to judgment. That's why I like Romans 8.1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Because that's where the law goes. Sin and then death. That's all the law can promise us. Because if every one of us sins, every one of us deserves death. And the only way that we can get life is by the mercy of God, which came through Jesus Christ. And that's his point here. You can't live in both worlds. You can't put your foot in both sides and say, I'm going to live by law and I'm going to live by grace. They don't fit together. One reveals that I need the other. Law reveals that I need grace. That's why Paul calls law a tutor that brings us to Christ. It shows us and reveals to us our need. It's the MRI that shows us that, that we have something that's messed up and we need grace to fix it. 
And so he says, they represent two covenants and Hagar represents the law. And corresponding or corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. The present city in Paul's day of Jerusalem was, was the center and the hub of the law. It was a center and hub of, of, uh, of human effort and human merit. And we can look at all around the world and see uh, uh, religions that are based on human merit and that somehow you've got to, to, to change yourself, that you've got to get out of yourself, you've got to uh, uh, be something better than yourself, you've got to be good or whatever. It's all based on me doing instead of God doing. And I don't want a life, a spiritual life that only depends on me because my faith, my religion will only go as high as I am and I'm not very high. I want my faith to go where God is. That it has divine involvement in me. And that's what he promises. That he wants to be involved. In fact, we're going to look at that next time. The spirit of God, that you're a temple of the spirit when you, when you receive Christ and he changes you inside out. He transforms your life. The law never transforms. The law never changes us. The law only shows us where we're not changed. And then we got to change on our own. Or grace, we already saw where we were not by law, and grace transforms. Grace changes us because God is in, engaged in that. Well, it goes on and talks about the, uh, the, uh, the other son. It says, because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. So now contrast two Jerusalems. The Jerusalem that's law. The Jerusalem that's above. And he gives the imagery that's found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. So now he's picturing the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And so this idea of, of the Jerusalem that is above, and he's talking about the Jerusalem that is of grace. And then he, he quotes a verse, and when you first read the verse, you look at it and kind of go, what is he quoting this verse for? It seems like it has no relationship. Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. And so you kind of go, what is this? He's quoting Isaiah 54. In order to understand what he's talking about, you have to go back to Isaiah 54. When you go to Isaiah 54, you see this verse, it's 54.1. And when you read through the chapter, you come across this in verse 11. O afflicted city. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about afflicted Jerusalem. They're still in captivity at this point that Isaiah is writing. And what he says to them, the Lord will call you back. And so the people are in Babylon. They've been, all the nobles and all the, the, uh, the uh, leaders have been taken to Babylon and they haven't been sent back yet. And Artaxerxes is going to send them back. You see that in, in the book of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Three returns one through Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, one through Ezra to rebuild the people's hearts according to the word, and, and one to, to, to go back uh, and, and build the walls, Nehemiah. He says, for a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. And you think, what is he talking about here, this deep compassion? 
Well, if you look at Isaiah 54, you know the chapter right before it is Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah 53 is this one. It says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Who's he talking about? Keep reading. And like a root out of the dyed ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We... uh, And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What are we seeing? The grace of God. The law honoring. The prophets honoring Christ. And he says, it's this one who comes, this suffering servant who comes, that chapter 53 talks about, that's going to free Jerusalem, and, 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 uh, and there's going to be great blessing that comes. So then he gives the application from this. He says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. And he says, you're like Isaac. You're children of promise. This is who you are. Why go back to something you're not? Be who God made you to be. Be who you are. You are children of promise. At that time, the son born the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. They're going through persecution But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her child for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. And you understand that statement. That's that's a statement that that when um, Isaac was persecuting, uh, I mean, Ishmael was persecuting Isaac, Sarah got upset and she said, something needs to be done. And so Abraham sent them away. And so Paul uses this imagery and says, that's what you need to do with the law. You need to send it away because it's incompatible. It doesn't fit. Because he says, therefore, brothers, again, he says, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. For it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm them and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, and he goes on and talks about the law here. He says, I, Paul, tell you that, uh, this is 5.2, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. It's, it's, not, it's an either or thing. It's not a both and. He says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the whole law. If you're going to apply, uh, say the law is the way to go, you better do it perfectly. If not, you're, you're toast. He says, you've been trying to be justified by law, have been alienated for Christ, you have fallen from grace, and you kind of go, whoa, have I done that? Does it mean I've lost my salvation? No. Because my salvation wasn't by, my, by me anyway. My salvation can never be by me. It's always by God. God is the one who assures my salvation. And I know from Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4 that when I received Christ, at the moment I received Christ, I received the Spirit of God. We're going to talk about him in the next section. I received the Spirit of God at the moment I was saved. How long do I keep the Spirit? In the Old Testament, Saul lost the Spirit. We can't lose the Spirit because of Ephesians 4.30, by whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. 
We have the Spirit of God until the day of redemption. We have the, I have the Spirit of God my whole life. That means I don't lose my salvation. It means it's impossible for me to lose it because I'd have to lose the Spirit. And he will not let me go. In fact, I love John chapter 10 and verse 28 where Jesus talks about this very thing, about those who are his children, they hear his voice. They're his sheep. They hear his voice and they come to him. They respond to him. And he he gives this image of, of his hand. No one shall snatch them from my hand. So if we picture that this is us, my keys, and we're placed into Christ's hand, no one, not even you, you're one of the ones, no one will snatch them from my hand. And the Father who is greater than I, he is greater than I, and no one shall snatch them from the Father's hand. We are doubly wrapped by Christ and by the Father. And we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He will never let go. He will never give up on us. We are his. We are his children. And that's why he says, he says, uh, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. This is who you are. And so there may be an alienation from Christ. We may have, because we turned our back on him, but he never turns his back on us. But by faith, we eagerly await through the spirit, the righteousness Verse 5, for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts, you might want to underline that. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So we believe. We trust in him. That's why Paul was able to say in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith. Law, I live by my works. Grace, I live by faith. We got to choose which one we live by. One, certain doom. Because none of us can be perfect. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's only by a grace system that we can be saved. It says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persecution does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. You got a little bit messed up. It, It messes up a lot. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. I'm confident you're not going to go back. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be, brothers, still calling them brothers, still calling them believers. So when he says, you've fallen from grace, he doesn't mean they've lost their salvation. He calls them brothers. He calls them as says they are children of the promise. He says, brother, I'm still preaching circumcision. Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish that they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. And don't, in other words, don't live any old way. Don't live uh, some other way that's, that's offensive to the gospel. But he says, rather serve one another in love. And you look at the application there, and, he, and he's saying all these things, and he kind of leads to this point. Work it out by serving and loving. I think that we think that the Christian life is about judging and looking down our nose at someone and pointing somebody's sin out. And it's like, you know, when I point somebody else's sin, I've got three fingers pointing back at myself. (laughs) 
I need to remember that. And I need to pull that one in too. Because that's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in the one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. You keep on biting and devouring each other. Watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. It is for freedom that Christ sets us free. He wants to set us free from the law of sin and death. And he wants us to be alive to him, to know that we are children of promise and that that begins to work itself out in our lives by our love for one another, by our community in him. You can have two people that, that kind of look like their lives are the same. They both spend time with the Lord in the morning, but one feels like they must do it and they ought to do it, and the other one does it because they just like spending time with the Lord. One person does uh, uh, prayer because they're fearful, and, and another one prays because they just can't wait to talk to their Savior. One studies the Word of God and tries to obey it because they think they, they better and, they, and it's out of fear, and the other one reads the word of God because it's a love letter to them from their Savior. And they, they can't wait to find out next what God wants them to do. And they know that they don't have to do it on their own, that the Spirit of God is going to help them with that. And like I said, we'll talk about that next time in that next section. I grew up with law. My first 17 years of my life were based on law. And when I first began to understand the grace of God, it set me free. I long for that, for all of us to begin to grow in that grace, to grow in that understanding. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but what it does is it helps Christ to be formed in us because Christ is full of grace and truth. Father, we come to you this morning. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came to set us free. It is for freedom that Christ sets you free. Lord, I pray that we would live a set free life. Not one that gives in to just any old thing, but one that lives according to the gospel. Lord, help us with that. We, we need your help. We, we can't do this on our own. We're not good on our own. He was perfectly good. And we are good in him only. Only because you look at us through, through him and through his eyes. Through the eyes of grace. Lord, I pray this morning for those who may not have taken that step toward grace, the grace of Christ, the grace that you offer. Lord, I pray this morning would be the day. I pray that they would respond to, the, to your gentle urging or even your strong urging on their life to respond to your love, that you love them with a great love and you so desire them to come to know you personally and not to try to do it on their own, not to live life in fear, but by your grace, to find forgiveness in Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that's struggling with that, that they would take that step even now toward you. They would respond to your drawing of them. 
and they would receive Christ as their Savior. Lord, I pray for those of us who've done that, but we still try to live in two worlds. Lord, I pray that we'd stop that. I pray that we'd live by grace. It's scary to live by grace because you're going to change us. You promised that. You're going to change us to become more like Christ and, and less like us. And Lord, that's a scary thing. But Lord, I pray that you would move us toward you. I pray that Christ would be formed in us truly. I pray that we would grow in grace. So Father, we come to you and we ask, change us, transform us. Help us to live a life of faith. Help us to begin to serve one another in love. Help us to be those who live by faith expressed in love. Lord, I pray that that would be our, the characteristics of our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.